Hi, I'm Brian Lay. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Fisher. And this is the Diversify Our Narrative podcast. Hi, I'm Elizabeth. I'm currently a third-year student or junior at the New School in New York City. I'm studying journalism and design with a minor in food studies. And my name's Brian Lay. I'm also a third-year slash junior. Uh, I go to Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and I am a double major in music composition and business and society. And this is a sort of a new, sort of a relaunch of the Diversifier Narrative podcast. And what we want to introduce now, and we'll be kind of honest and frank, is that we don't really know what the show is going to pan out to be, but we're hoping it's going to be a sort of season format. And the narrative for this season is going to be about the education system, the system itself. And we'll touch on different topics about it, um, a lot of it will be focused on the disparities, but also curriculum. And for this episode, we're going to be talking about uh, Common Core, certain learning outcomes of different grade levels, and the difference between public and private schools in our education system. So maybe let's start with something a little more casual, uh, Elizabeth. Um, what was your sort of like impetus for learning more about like education in general? Right. So I moved to New York for school in 2018, and I came from a small suburb in Southern California called Temecula. It's about an hour outside of San Diego. And that's where I lived my whole life. So my primary school education took place there, and I went to public schools for all of primary school. Um, and I really became to get critical about the education that I received in that community after moving to New York and going to college. And I think that's relatively typical to move to a big city and go to a radical school and have yeah. your eyes opened um, in so many ways. But I began hearing all these terms in my classes, in my college courses that I had never heard before in my high school, middle school, elementary education, but terms that seemed so relevant to understanding the history of the United States or just understanding what's going on in society in general. Things like mass incarceration, things like systemic racism. I don't think I heard the word systemic once in my education, um, mm -hmm. but I don't necessarily think that that's a coincidence because I do think that the education system in the United States is a system and it's part of a larger system or it's a system within itself that is fraught with inequalities. And to speak on that in classrooms would really... Um, you'd have to reflect a lot on what it means and what is being taught in those classrooms. So that's kind of what drew me to look back on my education experience and get more involved. What about you? Yeah, um, sort of on a different base. Uh, I grew up in Richardson, Texas, which is a suburb outside of Dallas. And I went to a magnet high school for the theater program. So I was kind of I was kind of locked away in a very white space. Like I, like theater is a very white space. Um, but my high school itself was a Title I school. So the average income was not super high. Um, there was a majority uh, Latinx population. The second largest group was white by like a, like a smaller margin. And then the third group was black. And then fourth and near the bottom was like the Asian group. So I was definitely like a minority within a minority, uh, especially because, you know, I studied theater and, and there's not a lot of Asian roles in theater. And so... I, I, w I always felt that sort of like out of place feeling and I felt like an outsider. But as you and, and like your experience, I never really heard the terms um, systemic racism and stuff because it was a public school in Texas and the curriculum was pretty conservative, I guess. Um, but yeah, I also had a journey in educational equity through college access. And so um, originally, I was going to apply to community college and go to UT Austin, which is the big public school in, in Texas. Um, and I just didn't know anything about private schools or higher education in general. And then this nonprofit uh, named Matriculate, they like reached out to me to apply to college and they were advising me to apply to like 
private schools and go to more. And, and I was like, I was like, oh, I'm not going to get into these schools. And they're like, well, you actually have a lot of potential and a good chance to get into elite schools. And so, uh, and private schools have like, uh, certain ones just have more money for scholarships for low income students, et cetera. And so, um, when I got to college, I started working for that nonprofit itself and I became an advisor and I started to work with the first gen low income community on campus. And, and I, and that's kind of where I'm at in my experience is like right now I'm, I'm identifying a lot of gaps in education for first gen slash low income students on campus and working with them anywhere from like housing insecurity to food, food insecurity to like the network gap. Um, and then maybe like we can talk about why we got into, to Don, um, just like even more so than the experiential part of being first gen is the curriculum part. Cause it's so erased. Um, why, why'd you get into Don? Yeah. As far as Don goes, I, um, I had been doing, I would, I would call it work, reaching out to some teachers of the high school that I went to. And I should just mention that um, my father was a teacher or still is a teacher at the high school that I went to. So while I was there, I was very aware that I was like on the inside. I mean, I definitely got special treatment in the sense that I could, me and my friends would eat lunch in his classroom on rainy days. I had a place to leave mm-hmm. my books. Like I would always get into football games for free and get to like go on the field. Um, but like, once again, it wasn't until I had distance from that experience that I realized that like another reason in which I had such a different experience from the students of color at my high school was because of the representation in the staff. I'm white. The high school was predominantly white, but also had a lot of different, um, minority groups within the high school. Um, Latinx was the second largest minority followed by, um, an Asian population as well as population of mixed races. Um, And we also are located kitty corner from Pachanga Casino, which is the casino for the Pachanga um, tribe of indigenous people that's located on Luceno land. So the high school Mm -hmm. was also located on top of um, Luceno land. But topics such as racism and colonization were glossed over, if at all touched upon, in a lot of the courses, like the courses that I'm speaking about specifically would be English and U.S. history, um, very much viewed as things of the past, but these things inform our ever-present experiences. So over the last year, after the Black Lives Matter movement um, started taking place and throughout the last summer, I was reaching out to some of the teachers within my high school and just talking about why we never learned about these things, why students of color at our school were not represented within the curriculum or within the staff and why white students like continue to be ignorant on these issues. Um, And a lot of the times if, if teachers were willing to talk to me and a group of peers that I was working with, a group of graduates, the response was often that they couldn't speak directly about these things because they were fearing backlash from white parents. And so it often was very Mm. frustrating that for me, and talking to the teachers that it felt like white parents were controlling the school and had more influence than the student body and the needs of the student body. And that is incredibly frustrating to think about. But I think that that happens in a lot of communities. And I think that happens in our country at large about white people being very resistant to change and very resistant to different truths and hearing different truths about our country. So I was doing that work last summer um, with teachers at my school and I had seen Dawn on my Instagram feed and I thought it just aligned perfectly with like a lot of the things that I had been talking about with teachers that, that I had had in the past. And that's really why I got involved. Um, what about you? How did you find Dawn? Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, very simple story as well. Like I was just on Instagram and between, um, diversifier narrative and between dear Asian youth, I was like, oh my God, like Gen Z is really killing it in terms of like pushing for a more, um, just like a more, I'm going to plug the name, like a diverse narrative in like our history courses and in like uh, our discourse of, of how we're talking about race. And I think if anyone's going to change anything, it's going to be young people. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. Like I said, we're going to go over the Common Core. And so you did a lot of research for this. Uh, What is Common Core? So Common Core, from my experience, was the buzzword of my education starting around the time I was 10. So like about the end of um, elementary school, you just heard the word Common Core. But I still like to this day don't necessarily know what Common Core is means um, exactly. But I think it is a national effort to kind of fix patchy places in education throughout the country. So it's curriculum created to kind of have a unified um, national curriculum, not so much content wise, but more form wise and more thinking based Mm -hmm. wise and how our students are um, thinking. And it was really brought out of the notion that education across the U.S. was patchy, like I said, and there was a lot of disparities, um, but also that the United States was falling behind in test scores throughout the world, specifically in the area of math. Um, So it was created in response to that, and the standards, um, as Common Core describes them, is high-quality academic standards in math, English language arts, and literacy, So there's a strong focus on math and language arts, which kind of embodies reading, um, writing, speaking, and listening, much less of a focus on history and science. However, language arts and literacy are embedded within social studies and science. Basically, reading comprehension and writing and critical thinking are embedded throughout other subjects. And then math is its its own kind of separate set of standards. Um, do you have any familiarity with Common Core? Was that a buzzword for you like it was for me? Yeah, I did it. And so I, I just learned this for this episode, which is like Common Core is not a thing in Texas. And um, my roommate that I, I talked to a lot, she went, she has a lot of opinions on Common Core. And I was like, what is Common Core? What is this? I thought it was just like new, like new math, like in that scene in Incredibles 2. <laughs> When he's like, why'd you change math? I thought it was that. (laughs) Uh, But it turns out it's been around for like way longer than I thought. But I think my Texas state education standards were still similar in a lot of ways. Like we do in our English courses, we backed up, we backed up our arguments with um, evidence. It was very persuasive based. And then I think the AP system also normalizes a lot. Um, But in terms of like primary and secondary education or primary and like middle school education I don't I don't I don't know like I literally because I wasn't a part of it I have no metric of like what common core how that affected like uh elementary school students which I think is the the main complaint that I've heard yeah well it kind of hit me after elementary school I think it was like around the time I was going into middle school that's when it came into my curriculum but the thing is, is like I don't necessarily remember and I think it's hard to gauge exactly how it affected you because it's not specific content that you're learning. It's more how you apply thinking skills. Um, so maybe it's affected the way that I think and learn and consume information. Definitely, I love to argue with people and make evidence-based arguments. So maybe that has something to do with it. Um, but more so... It's, yeah, like I said, it's more of like a form and a theory of like how thinking or thinking and learning kind of build off of one another from each grade, which isn't like a radical thought. That's like, I think, why grades kind of exist. But it's, it builds, they're building blocks in both learning mathematically and through language arts. Um, But I think that it is very interesting that Texas didn't have this experience, especially because Common Core sells itself as this like national framework. However, only 41 states have adopted it. So there's a lot of there's a lot of states and there's a lot of students that have never had experiences with Common Core. The states being Alaska, Texas, Oklahoma, Nebraska, Minnesota, Florida, South Carolina, Indiana, Virginia, and then Puerto Rico as a territory also hasn't adopted mm. it. So it's kind of hard to say that it is a national framework and then there's a ton of the population that's left out, especially in Texas and Florida, that's a huge population of kids that don't have this like national unifying framework that I feel like it's sold to be. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. What the way I hear it, like as it was being described to me with the with the evidence backed approach, was like, oh, so like getting closer to like a liberal arts education, I guess, and being able to assert your own ideas and stuff. I don't think it's that. And also, I found out um, from this, which is, it's not like federal policy. It's not something. It's it's like you said. It's a it's sort of a conglomerate thing. Um, so like. Can you tell me about like the context and like where it came from if it's not a federal policy? Right. So it's not a federal policy. And if it was, then you definitely would be familiar with it. It would be in all 50 states. But the federal government didn't set any of the standards in Common Core. Common Core was created by state governors and people across states that were involved in education at a higher level. Um, And they created the curriculum and the federal government supported it. And this was under the Obama administration. And they supported it through a stimulus bill of $4.4 billion from the um, education department grants for each state. So the states didn't have to adopt the standards, but if they didn't adopt the standards, they couldn't compete for that federal money. Um, Mm. So it was kind of in a way, it was like persuading states to join, but there was no there was no there was no law or bill like on a federal level for states to start implementing common core standards um and it comes after like a long line of the federal government being having a hand in education um before this i don't know if you're familiar with the no child left behind act but that is very much the way that Common Core is tied, I feel like, to the Obama administration, No Child Left Behind is tied to George Bush's administration. And that increased the federal government's role in education more than it had been in the past. And um, it definitely was involved in making sure that students with special education needs and minority students and students who were economically disadvantaged were not left behind in the education system. Um, And it was a collaboration between civil rights groups and businesses, as well as Democrats and Republicans to monitor schools' progress. And the way that it monitors schools' progress across states was through standardized testing. Do you have familiarity with standardized testing? Is that something that brings up memories for you? Yeah, it brings up a lot of (laughs) uh, very bad memories. Things like I very much forgot about um, and I, they like changed names at a certain point. Like when I was younger in like kindergarten through second grade, they were called like benchmarks. Yeah. Um, and then eventually they changed to, to CBAs or something when I got to like middle school or high school. And I don't know if that's like a, a universal thing, but it went from benchmarks to CBAs. There were certain tests you like definitely had to take for for high school like um you had to take a a biology test to like you had to pass that to to graduate you had to do uh one in u.s history and one in um chemistry there were like five and so i don't remember the exact five but yeah i do i I hate standardized testing um I, i don't miss those days Yeah, I don't miss those days either. But I think it definitely evolves from when you're like a young kid. I don't know. For me, when I was a kid, like when we had the, I'm not even sure what they're called. It was like state, just state testing or standardized testing. Um, We would get mints. Did you guys ever get mints? It was like focus mints. (laughs) We got mints and that's supposed to make you focus. And like we would definitely, like the teachers would emphasize like eating a good breakfast. So I would always tell my mom, like, I have to have like a best, the best breakfast ever this morning. Yeah, We're yeah. testing. <laughs> um, so that was always kind of like, it just seemed like a big deal. Like it seemed like an event when I was in elementary school and then getting into high school and it started being more, I don't know. I, I think of like, just when you're all in like a room with like a bunch of students that go to your high school and like people are tapping their foot on the floor and everyone's just crazy stressed. Like the memories definitely evolve and I don't miss those days either. But I think it's funny how it used to be like, (laughs) I associate it with like eating mints and then I associate it with like (laughs) such anxiety. But yeah, no, I I remember that because like um, in elementary school, there were like, you had to wait until everyone was done before like you could go on to your next thing or go to recess or something. Um, so I, I remember like bringing, I do remember the breakfast thing 
Um, I had pancakes for the first time because my teacher was like, you got to have carbs because it will help your brain think. And so I was like, mom, I got to buy pancakes. And so that's when the first time I had pancakes was in like third grade. And then I remember bringing like, like piles and piles of books to read after, um, after I was done. And then I would get a lot of reading done. I would have like strategically sit across from my friends and I, that I knew would finish like the same time that I would. And then we would like be able to like make eye contact and, and have fun there. Um, but yeah, I guess it was more fun in elementary school. Yeah. That's so funny. I'm like imagining like little Brian in elementary school. And that's like <laughs> so funny. I also remember the little like dividers that you had to put up, like put up on your desk. So you didn't oh, yeah, peek over dividers. to like someone else's <laughs> desk. They didn't trust us, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> As little kids. Um, yeah. I mean, so that th- standardized testing, I don't know how it necessarily fits into Common Core per se. It was definitely a lot more had to do with No Child Left Behind. Um, Common Core switches I think from testing from like A, B, C, D answers to more like long interpretive explanatory answers. So maybe we could get a little bit more into like learning standards by grade. I chose like kindergarten, fourth grade, eighth grade, 12th grade. And maybe we can just compare. I don't know if I'm necessarily going to be able to remember exactly what I learned in those grades, but that could maybe give us like a better idea of like what common core is looking for and like looks at and is setting standards for um yeah so for kindergarten it's like way back at the very beginning <laughs> for math um so it's split into math and english language arts and then english language arts is split, split into a lot of other categories like i had said um but for math representing and comparing whole numbers with sets of objects is one focus and another focus is describing shapes in space and I think that's so sweet but I think that yeah that's like kind of to give you ideas like they're very general and obviously teachers have a lot of agency in how they implement these standards it's nothing like they have to learn these amount of numbers this way these are the buttons that they have to use to count to like make sure they're learning this amount like that's not how Common Core works. It's very general um, and it's definitely like building block. Um, so the next grade will also emphasize these things, but it'll be a little bit more critical. Yeah. I, I have a funny, uh, not related to math, I think related to English. Um, I had a funny a response in kindergarten where we were learning to spell words. And this was, when I was five, I was also learning English at the time uh, because I grew up in a Vietnamese speaking household only for the first five years and um my first my first word that i learned that had two vowels next to each other was moon and i was like i'm like you can put two o's next to each other what the hexical and so i was like saying moon like every minute of the day i was like moon 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 and i and then like i learned balloon and that blew my mind like two l's and two o's english is crazy that's so fun that's so fun i love that that was like those are the two. I love that moon and balloon are like the two words. They're so fun to say and they're just like wonderful objects to have be like the words that you need to repeat all the time. Yeah. Uh, for what was, what was English like for kindergarten? Um, for English, it says with prompting and support. So obviously kindergartners are helped out a lot. Um, ask mm-hmm. and answer questions about key details and text. Retell familiar stories, including details, identify characters, settings, and major events in a story. Which I feel like for kindergartners, once you get to the age of five and six, like you've watched enough Pixar movies, you've watched like you've watched enough shows and movies to really understand a storyline. So I think it's really breaking down a storyline and how stories come together in a really elementary fashion and like the most basic fashion by just prompting and asking questions which I don't remember necessarily how my kindergarten learning experience went I do remember there was a lot of like (laughs) counting going back to math there was a lot of counting things Mm -hmm. and separating things I really loved that I really loved organizing like different colors and putting things into groups that was like my favorite thing I feel like that still is my favorite thing um yeah but I think that that like probably hits the mark with what I was doing was breaking down how stories are told. Um, I feel like that even even saying that sounds intense for a kindergartner. But does that do you feel like you maybe did that in kindergarten as well? 
I think so. Honestly, I spent more time in ESL, English Second Language, than I did uh, with like the other kids. Yeah, I think it's interesting that for the most part, the core message of it is so um, story-based, which easily leads to arguments and, and leads to um, thinking critically and synthesizing different sources compared to like I felt like I spent a lot of time doing the more granular stuff of like um, vocabularies, spelling, grammar. And it's like, I bet those are there in the standard somewhere. And it's like, but it's still like a granular detail. It's not like a main focus, which I think is a nice shift because one thing is like a certain metric that is very uh, easy to measure like numerically. And another is very, it's more difficult to measure, but the output hopefully is that it's more impactful for the, for the students. Right. I definitely think that the more granular things are incorporated in common core curriculum, maybe in a different subsect of English language. Cause I'm focusing more on like reading literature. That was the subsect. Um, However, I do think that like the bigger picture and not that those like grammar spelling isn't important. That's absolutely that could be a bigger picture in itself. But the the focusing on like what's going on and how do I how do I make sense of this, retell it or re-explain it and even like add an argument or my opinion to it using evidence. That's something that that's huge in Common Core. And honestly, reflecting on it, I think that that was something that I gained from my education. We were always looking for quotes to back something up. There was always, we always had to provide quotes with page numbers and use that sort of structure when writing. Did you have to do that? Where like finding quotes, like a big part of your education? I, I honestly can't say so. I think maybe I just missed it and I wasn't using it or doing it. But I think I oh, I started to think about sources and quotes more deliberately in college because even in high school, even up till like 11th grade English, I really don't remember using quotes like that. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, I feel like that was like ingrained in my soul to like back things up with quotes <laughs> um, to this day. To this day, though, I still struggle with like how to put the page number where like the granular stuff. Maybe mm-hmm. I could have used more help with because I still struggle with that. And there's so many different style formats that sometimes it's like it's it just doesn't even matter at a certain point. But moving on to eighth grade, um, the math gets like way over my head. There's no way I could do any <laughs> of this. Um, but some of the standards for math is use linear equations and solve systems of linear equations to represent, analyze, and solve a variety of problems. So an example of this would be solving for like the slope on a graph. I do remember slope. Like I do remember not how to do it, but I just remember like that that was something that was a big deal is finding the slope. Um, another standard would be to define, evaluate, and compare functions. And another standard is to understand congruence and similarity using physical models, transparencies, or geometry software, and to understand the Pythagorean theorem. Oh, really? Pythagorean theorem in eighth grade? I feel like it should have come before or after. Wow. Maybe Texas education was lacking I feel I feel like I didn't learn that theorem until like 10th grade huh I feel like I feel like this conversation is just like illuminating to the point of how different our education yeah was because I mean I don't know if I can really speak on Pythagorean theorem because I know I learned it earlier I know that I did however it didn't stick with me so it's like what Mm. Does it stick with you? Have you? Could you like pull it out of your back pocket right now? Is that a squared plus b squared equals c squared? There we go. Okay. Yeah, (laughs) it is. Uh, Okay, it rings. It it rings a bell, but it doesn't. It doesn't stick with me. And so it's. I don't know. I guess that doesn't necessarily matter. Like when you learn it, but just the differences are are really interesting and the outcomes are really interesting and not to mention like obviously we're different people and everyone has a different strength and weakness in terms of education um but i think that it schools school districts states and where you are and who you are affects your education 
drastically. And I don't think that there's necessarily a fix to that. And I think Common Core a lot of times sells itself as a fix um, or at mm-hmm. least tries to be. And I think that it, um, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's really hard to say. Like, it, I just feel like, obviously, like we have so many discrepancies in our education. So, yeah. Or also to art students. Right. So, <laughs> so math is like a hard thing to talk about. Yeah. It doesn't bring back. What about, what about English? Um, for English, it's similar from the past, from the past standards from fourth and kindergarten, but to cite textual evidence that most strongly supports the analysis of what the text says, um, to determine a theme or a central idea of a text and analyze its development over the course of the text, and to analyze how particular lines of dialogue or incidents in a story or drama compel the action. Oh, yeah. I, I remember reading some good texts in eighth grade. I read um, Night by uh, Eli Weasel, I think. Yes. And that was about um, the Jewish experience in a concentration camp. And I read Rolling Thunder, Hear Me Cry, I think is the name. And that was about the black experience in America during the Dust Bowl. It's interesting because these standards don't include what texts need to get these standards across like I said like it's not specific in that way which makes me think a lot about the work that Don does in terms of getting anti-racist texts into schools of course Mm -hmm. all of these standards could apply to any of the anti-racist texts that are being used in schools however I think a lot of schools are very hesitant in implementing those texts in their classrooms but I I think I ask myself a lot like what do we have to radically rethink our education system or is there a way that we can reform it and incorporate anti-racist texts with the current curriculum that's in place? And I think maybe the answer is both, but I think that there is opportunities to, at this given moment, incorporate texts into the schools, even like with, and I'm speaking like directly in terms of like the common core curriculum. Yeah. Let's jump to 12th grade and then we'll wrap up this section quickly. Perfect. Um, so 12th grade for Common Core, like the grades are grouped together. So it's 9th and 10th, 11th and 12th. And I think that's because once you get to high school, there's a lot of just differences in where people at are learning at learning. Like once you get to that point, people are kind of spread out across the board. So mm-hmm. for the 11th and 12th grade, math um, Math is also a little bit of a complicated thing in high school because it's not necessarily standards like I had been mentioning before, like the three set standards. You take different classes and each class has a different standard. So you do and you don't have to do math every four every year of high school. So I didn't I didn't get like specific standards for math, but there is a number and quantity class that you can take an algebra class, um, a functions class and not class, but more so set standards modeling mm-hmm. standards, geometry standards, and st- statistic and probability standards. So it's basically different classes with different standards and different outcomes based on where the student's at and what math the student would be interested in or feel like would best serve them. Did you take math all four years in high school? I, I did. I took my first year, I took geometry, and then I took um, algebra two and then I took pre-cal and then my senior year I took AP calculus BC and I took AP stats you took both your senior year yeah wow nice yeah I didn't take AP stats but I feel like that would have been probably a lot more helpful than the ones that I ended up taking I think I got to (laughs) I think I got to AP calc um but yeah like I said like math was math was like hard for me it was it wasn't necessarily that I was so bad at it but it was it was just a lot. I had to put a lot more effort into math than I had to do in my other subjects, um, I think, to get the grade that I wanted to get. Um, so I think I got to AB Calc. I took that my senior year. Um, yeah. So it's a little bit different once you get to high school. Common Core like varies across both grade-wise and then for math, like different subjects. But for a language, um, once again, Citing strong and thorough textual evidence to support analysis of what a text says explicitly, as well as inferences drawn from the text, including determining where the text leaves matters uncertain. It also asks to determine two or more themes or central ideas of a text and analyze their development over the course of the text, including how they interact and build on one another. 
and then analyze the impact of the author's choices regarding how to develop and relate elements of a story or a drama. That seems pretty similar to eighth grade. Yeah, and it honestly, like, it seems like a very far derivative of, or maybe it's the opposite way, kindergarten's a derivative of what we're seeing here in terms of, like, Mm -hmm. telling stories, retelling stories. It's just the use of evidence. It's seeing how themes connect and, like, what the overall message is and how we can infer what characters are doing. And I think for my English experience in high school, a lot of these things definitely resonate for English. Like I do remember having to explain and re-explain what texts were about using evidence and make arguments and make like debates or have opinions about text using evidence specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for my English experience, um, I took... Well, at least for this area, I took English three my junior year and then I actually took English four through the community college because I couldn't fit into my schedule. And one was uh, one was writing and one was comparative lit. And I'm really sad I missed the comparative lit part. But for the writing part, that was a lot of like learning um, logical fallacies, learning different literary tools like uh, synecdoche and other like very random techniques. And um, I think that's interesting that I guess like reflecting on the overall common core standards that we've like talked about is the evidence base for the English part I find fascinating. But I think what I find more fascinating is in terms of math and also a trend overall is that education is getting so skewed in STEM and there's such a focus on math and science. And um, that's interesting because that also happened in, in Texas where my high school is like when I left high school, the year after that, they started to change up what curriculum went where and they started to accelerate different, um, different fields. So like you would start with physics in eighth grade. And so by the time you got to high school, oh, and you started biology and stuff in like seventh grade too. And so when you got to high school, you were able to take AP bio, AP chemistry, AP physics all straight in a row so that you could have a firm understanding of those sciences, which like they would never put that same like forethought into other things like, you know, arts or English or something. Yeah, I've never thought of the sequence in that way, how how you go straight into high school and you can really take like the APs and the sciences. But mm-hmm. for for at least in my experience for art and AP, AP art and like the different um, more liberal arts courses that were offered as AP, it was definitely like an elective. It was definitely like you had to kind of, you had to fit it into your schedule, whereas like the other ones were... I suppose like people that didn't want to take the science classes didn't necessarily have to, but there were more requirements around those classes, I would say, than there were around taking art classes um, or taking something more creative. Um, I also I also was thinking about this when reading through the standards is there's no there's no notion of creativity in any of these standards. And I think that creativity a lot of people would argue you can't teach and I I don't I don't disagree but I think that it's something you can foster and I think mm-hmm. like for me and talking about how yeah like I definitely think that I learned how to use evidence in text and to back things up and I think I still use it today if I'm like writing an article for like a journalism piece or something I definitely know how to pull text and I I wonder what what kind of student and what kind of person I would be if like creativity and that's such a broad term but was fostered in the same way or even yeah or even things like like social justice like I don't know necessarily like teaching classes on that per se but that's not ingrained in the standards at all and it really I think shows that these standards are to have an upper edge in like the competitive world maybe Mm -hmm. as opposed Mm -hmm. to having one that's like more self-reflective or more reflective of like the world around you. It's more oriented towards like marketplace, I want to say, or like how you do in your career or college, getting into college. But it's also about like what colleges are looking for, which kind of matches 
what these standards are too. So it's maybe not necessarily all on the back end of primary education. It is also what colleges are asking for. But yeah, I think that that's, it's, it's, for me, it's, it's upsetting that creativity isn't something that's like, it seems it's almost like a side thought. It's like you do that in your extracurriculars or your like one elective. Um, it's not something that's advocated for in schools. At least it wasn't in my experience. Yeah. Um, Texas is lucky in that it has pretty good funding for music programs, not necessarily for all art programs, but for music programs. And so I think in that aspect, I, I was very lucky. And I've talked a lot about that with my friends. And just to pick up on something you said, which is the social justice piece, while while I would love to have a, you know, incredibly progressive um curriculum that does root itself in like critical race theory that roots itself in gender equity and stuff i think this the the common core sort of like proposal at least attempts to do a a a a a a neutral take on that in like the focus on evidence should in theory make you read actual credible sources and should, in theory, allow you to get to those things about critical race theory, about uh, gender and about socioeconomic disparities, because you're looking for those things in an evidence-based way. I I just think like, you know, this is what, 2002, it might have been too radical to go into something like social justice, but that is something I would love to see in the soon, very near future through some good organizing. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's why the work that Don does in terms of getting anti-racist, decolonials text into schools is so important because it's like this is, like like you just said, there's so, breaking down those texts using kind of the notions of these standards and making arguments and using the evidence within the text to back things up could be so radical for students mm-hmm. and it doesn't necessarily need to take um, like it doesn't need to be an entire overarching change of the system um, of the education system to make change right now. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I think that that's, I think just going back to the work that Don does, it's, it's important and it's something that I'm like really happy to see an organization doing something like that, especially of students who recognize kind of the lapses in their education. Yeah. Um, This is a bit of an aside, which I don't know if you had this, but when I started, I think ninth grade, they really started to push this thing called project-based learning or PBLs for short. And that was like, a lot of group work, a lot of collaboration and trying to approach problem solving in a creative manner. And did you have anything like that? Um, I, I don't I don't remember like PBL, like I don't remember those terms. I do think like it kind of depended on the teacher, the amount of group work that was going to take place in a classroom. Mm. And like it really was just about if the teacher was into the collaborative process or not, perhaps there was standard step for collaboration. Um, I don't think that that's part of the common core curriculum is collaborating in a creative sense or collaborating at all, which I also think is something that's critical to interacting socially and to learning and to also learning yeah. about other people um, around you and their how their educational experience is similar and different than yours. I think that that's something that's could also be incorporated in standards um yeah but it would also have to be implemented obviously in a fashion that's like acceptable and like yeah yeah helps students and and that like takes soft skills seriously and like how to collaborate how to communicate and how to like lead and 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 all this stuff but but yeah that's interesting because I think my district took that seriously in some classes where like you're going to be working in a group the entire year and your finals are going to be in groups and your tests are going to be in groups. And so I think that's way unique compared to Common Core. Um, Let's get into a few critiques that because I know you have some critiques or some thoughts on Common Core. Um, I think like I do think that 
the critiques for things that we've been covering this entire discussion, which is that Mm -hmm. it is really a, I think, common core, at least, especially when I was growing up, it was like, okay, we're doing common core and we're doing this like all together. Like the whole, like everyone in the United States is going through common core. Like everyone's going through it together. Minus these nine states and Puerto Rico as a territory. (laughs) So it's not everyone all together. So it's not really what I guess I thought it was. Um, And it's also interesting to me that it was like pushed by the federal government, but not created by the federal government. I didn't know that as well. So I think it's just knowing that even with Common Core, even if all 50 states had Common Core, the curriculum is not specific. It's like schools Mm -hmm. teachers have a lot of agency school districts have agency as to what goes on in their classroom states have agency so definitely depending on who you are and where you live your education experience is going to differ so it's not i guess this unifying (laughs) national education that i thought it was at a certain point and then i think also what we were just talking about about how creativity is not mentioned in these standards and maybe opportunities to opportunities to use these standards for the better in terms of learning about issues of social justice and inequalities um, that are all around us. I don't think that that's maybe developed enough in these standards, but we covered that. So do we want to move on to public and private education? Yeah. So I, I, I don't think Common Core is required by private schools, right? No, and that's that's another thing where it's like there's this large discrepancy in terms of everyone is having these standards. I guess that was like added on to those nine states that I was talking about. It's also what happens in private schools and a lot of kids go to private schools. I know we didn't, but I know a lot of people that went to private schools. Yeah, me too. Especially when I got to college, I feel like half the people I know went to private schools. Yeah. But let's start with um, and this is, I guess, just a brief overview, because I know there's I know we've been talking a lot so far. And so one thing that I would want to talk about is like enrollment and comparative size. And so in and this is from 2015, this uh, statistic, but uh, enrollment in public primary and secondary schools was around 47 million. And in private schools, it was like 6 million. And so like comparatively, uh, there's a whole lot more people in public schools, but both like anecdotally from us, I feel like there is a a much, uh, it's very disproportionate in terms of representation in higher education. And I think private, private schools, especially private high schools, have been rising overall in enrollment at a quicker pace because of that preparatory part of like preparing people to go into college and 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 a workforce yeah yeah i know that's definitely interesting because i feel like the new school there's there's so many students that came from a private school and i don't really question it actually like i don't i never think twice about that i'm i get that they had a different education experience than i did but i don't question it but when you say when you talk about ratios of who's attending universities and you really think about why that is um it it seems like there's maybe I mean it just seems like there's inequalities there across the board that Mm -hmm. you could really flesh out but I think that those numbers in a way speak for themselves um and also as far as like what's the student body at private schools in terms of ratios um the average private school is a lot smaller than public schools it has the average school has 170 students and the average public school has 530 students so that means like the teacher to student ratio is going to be very different um and that obviously affects learning experiences and the attention that students are given in classrooms it's crazy to me my high school was i had a thousand kids in my graduating class like almost Mm -hmm. which is like very large Um, The class sizes were very large, and I feel like um, having a parent as a teacher, you hear a lot about class sizes and just, like, how, honestly, like, how overwhelming it can be on, like, a teacher's end to really, like, fulfill the needs of all students. So I think when you think about private schools um, having a smaller class sizes, it kind of seems like the attention one gets in, like, a college classroom. And I'm sure it's different for private schools across the board, but 
it is it makes a difference because now I have a lot of smaller classes and I have a lot of relationships with my professors that I couldn't even dream of having in high school, yeah. um, especially if I didn't have a dad working at the school. Yeah, that makes sense. And also uh, thinking about counselors and college readiness, this makes sense because my high school was also pretty big. I don't think it was as big as yours. I think total enrollment was like 34, 3,500. And by the time I graduated, it was skewed to where there were more freshmen than there were seniors. And so even though we started with like 900 freshmen, we probably ended up with like 600 seniors. And by the time those seniors rolled around to talk to counselors about college, there were 600 seniors to five counselors and one college counselor. And so there's just no possible way those counselors are going to be able to adequately support their students to really advise them to college. Like it's really like the students are on their own because there's just too much quantity. Right. Um, Yeah. Let's, I'm going to move on to area. And so uh, this is in terms of like rural versus city versus suburban. Um, 43% of private school students are enrolled in the city uh, and 40% Uh, are enrolled in the suburbs, 6% in towns, and 11% in rural areas. Comparatively, public schools are less enrolled in cities. Uh, Only 30% compared to 43% are in cities. But there are more people enrolled in public schools in towns and rural areas. So I think this makes sense, especially with stereotypes I hear about like New Yorkers trying to send their students to private schools instead of uh, public schools. But I, I I don't know. This makes sense because cities have generally higher incomes. Yeah, I didn't I didn't grow up in New York City and I'm glad that I did not because it seems as though it's like a college application process to get into oh, yeah. middle school, to get into kindergarten. Like I've heard yeah. stories about how parents like, yeah, it's this huge deal to get their kids to go to some kindergarten and to some to some middle school. I like have family friends who their son is my age and he was telling me about like he didn't get into the middle school he wanted to go to and how he like remembers crying in this like one place in the city and I just like cannot imagine the stress that I went through my senior year of high school as a 10 year old like that seems crazy to me (laughs) Um, but I do think that that's like so very specific to places that like have I mean obviously yeah, if you have like a lot of competing schools, a lot of competing private schools, such as New York City or I know Los Angeles as well, um, you know which one you want to go to and which one like you don't want to go to. You know what that means. It's very similar to me to like college admissions. And mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's like it's kind of an overwhelming thought, I feel like, um, especially as a young kid. Um, yeah. Moving on to race in private schools, um, the overall population in private schools is 69% white, 9% black, 10% um, Latinx, 7% um, Asian and Pacific Islander, and 4% two or more races. Where in comparison to public schools, they have an overall population of 50% white, 15% black, 26% Latinx, 5.5 Asian and Pacific Islander, and two or um, more races is at 3%. And then public and charter schools are more diverse with 33% being white, 27% being black, 32% Latinx, and 5% Asian and Pacific Islander. So, I mean, I think those numbers are very telling in terms of racial disparities in schools. And I think that they also kind of, I would say, is like a subsect to the numbers we were talking about earlier in terms of... um, in terms of just enrollment in colleges as well and how we see that reflected in college spaces as well. Um, It's interesting to me about charter schools because I don't know too much about charter schools. So I didn't know that they tended to be more diverse um, because I don't really know much about them. Yeah, I'm excited to learn more about charter schools and hopefully we'll do an episode on that for this season because charter schools get a bad rap of draining a lot of resources from um, the public institutions and then sort of like they are placed intentionally in more diverse areas but the way that resources are distributed can be harmful especially to public schools which makes this conversation really 
really hard. But yeah, like you said, I think it is telling. Like when you're talking about 69% white in private schools versus 50% white in public schools. And when you're talking about, um, you know, like 9% black in private schools versus what is this? 15% black in public schools. This is like, even though they're, I guess, smaller differences, it's, it's just skewing in terms of like, there has to be certain biases in terms of uh, applications, in terms of access, and in terms of location, in terms of proximity. Yeah. I also think it talks like it speaks to just economic inequality in the United States in general mm-hmm. and who can afford. I also think it speaks to neighborhoods and what different neighborhoods look like and why, yeah, why some people in certain neighborhoods can send their children to private schools and why some neighborhoods it's like mandatory that or at least like in a lot of parents minds it's like I don't want to send you to a public school in this neighborhood like I think for New York that's a lot of the times the case and then it gets to a whole nother level of like competition but it's why are public schools especially in highly populated areas especially in highly populated areas and cities that are racially diverse why are they so poor like why are they so why do people not want to go to them so I think starting with numbers in education you can look at the whole society or you can look at the whole society and then you can draw it back to education I think they reflect each other in so many ways right and you touch on cost and I think this is like this was mind-blowing to me because I kind of knew private school was expensive um the there there's a all uh, women's private school and an all men's private school in in Dallas that are pretty notorious and are like target schools for for like Ivy Leagues but like the average private school tuition for 2019 to 2020 was eleven thousand dollars a year and then the average boarding school tuition was around like thirty nine thousand dollars a year which is like crazy because that's like I know people paying that much for college um, for both of those numbers so it's just insane to think like you're going to send a five-year-old to school and spend $11,000. Yeah. It's like paying for college your whole educational life. And it's crazy because, I mean, some families cannot afford college in any light and some families work their whole life to send their kids to college. But then there's other families who are paying the same amount of money for college, like from the very beginning. Um, and since neither of us like went to school at a private school, it's really hard to ex- like t- talk about like the education and the experiences that go on inside. <laughs> like I wish I had an inside yeah. look and I wish I could really know what what the differences are. And I think a lot of the times and I think I think some of the times and I don't think that this is necessarily like the, the children's choosings, but I think it's a lot of times like like just segregating the students from what would go on in a public school in that area like a lot of times it's just like drawing a boundary between private and public um yeah which brings us back to the questions that we were asking earlier yeah right in atlanta um there's this one elementary school where an administrator came to talk to one of our my classes and he was like our elementary school is across the street from a penitentiary and it's also across the street from a homeless shelter and so it's like, in terms of location, in terms of, you know, clientele, it's it's, it's really telling. Right. And I think a, a way to connect this to their, uh, to like the learning experience that we were talking about is I do have a bit on curriculum. So public schools have to adhere to state standards and state required texts, whereas private schools can kind of teach like whatever they want and whatever like the board decides and they're focus and so you know there are private schools that focus on religious texts and have a very religious agenda there are some that are focused more on like a collegiate uh level learning and preparing people to get into college but also to um i have a friend who was lucky enough to go to a private school that focused on social justice which was really interesting to learn about and I guess like what I found most interesting about all this is that like teachers that teach at private schools do not necessarily have to have a teaching certificate. Like it's preferred, um, but really all you need is typically a bachelor's or a master's in whatever subject you're trying to teach. And 
that also means that private schools uh, do not have to be accredited. Like if you're trying to send students to college, then you should be accredited, but you don't have to be, especially if you're pushing for a more um, religious agenda. Yeah, that's in terms of a religious agenda, like the, the private schools that were in my community, because most students in the community went to public schools, but the private schools were all religious. Um, and so I think my my notions of private school has to do with which like religion. And I assume that there's a lot of religion going on. But I think it's interesting to think about secular private institutions. And it's also interesting to think about the history um, of these private schools that are religious or secular, because I think that like colleges, a lot of times there's a lot of like deep rooted history in a lot of these private mm-hmm. schools. Um, and that's not necessarily true for public schools, because I think that there's definitely more of like a culture that's both specific to private schools in general, but also specific to specific private schools. So I just feel like it's a whole, it's a whole nother world and I wonder how like curriculum plays into that culture that I'm kind of getting at um and I also think it's interesting to think of common core being this big like um unifying agenda and then it changing like and that how that's not a priority at private schools private schools aren't necessarily Mm -hmm. looking to match their standards with anyone else it's it's private um so yeah, there's definitely a difference in terms of what students are learning and how they're learning too. Yeah. Any final thoughts before we move on to the to the last book segment of this piece? Um, I guess more than anything, I'm just very interested in private schools. I'm going to have to ask the people that I um, go to school with now who went to private schools what their experiences were like um, because I do feel like it's a lapse in the education system that's not acknowledged as much as maybe it should be just about Mm -hmm. the differences and are those differences like are those fair are those okay um i think it's questions that we should be asking maybe more often what about you any final thoughts my final thoughts is um common core sounds really cool on paper i think in practice it's not the the most specific or progressive thing that maybe civil rights groups were hoping it would be but i think hopefully it was a starting point and hopefully we can change some more with uh local organizing yeah So before we end, I just wanted to recommend a book to listeners who are looking to diversify their narrative. Um, That's corny, but it's true. Um, (laughs) So we're intending to do like a little book shout out um, every week at the end of the episode. And for the first episode, I want to encourage listeners to read Between the World and Me by journalist and author Ta-Nehisi Coates. It won the National Book Award in 2015. Um, And in a form, so it's written in a form from a letter um, that Tanihasi Coates writes to his young son, but it's a personal narrative about Coates's own life and living as a black man in the United States. And it really gets into the United States racialized history and how violence permeates through that, um, both in the past and in the present day. Um, it's a book that Toni Morrison called a required reading. I've read his work as a journalist, and I've been wanting to read a book of his for a really long time. And I read this book earlier this year and I absolutely loved it. I think he's an exceptional writer and thinker. Um, And so, yeah, I would definitely recommend it to all of the listeners who are looking for something to read that's both historical and also very personal. And I think a lot of the times like history can be an overwhelming thing to look about because it's such big picture and you lose you kind of lose the personal, how it affects the personal. So Mm -hmm. in reading memoirs, Mm -hmm. um, reading memoirs and reading fiction books even too, it really connects you to how this affects people's lives on a day-to-day basis. And that's certainly what I felt when reading this book. For educators who are interested in teaching this book in classrooms or anyone who wants to look at the book more deeply, Dawn has created a lesson plan with activities and discussion questions that can be found and downloaded on the Dawn website. 
And the lesson plan focuses on um, understanding how a micro history fits in within a larger history, um, within like the larger context of U.S. history, world history, which is what I was just kind of touching on. But it also talks about identifying primary and secondary sources. So it's a really interesting lesson plan to implement in classrooms and could be cool. Maybe Common Core could (laughs) tie it into its standards as well. I think it could fit right along. Yeah. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed this first episode. And until next time, bye. Thanks for listening to the podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Diversify Our Narrative, or you can go to diversifyournarrative.com where you can find resources, educational content, and more. Special thanks to Feel the Ambiances for our music. And don't forget to rate five stars on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify.